All right, I'll invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Ezekiel chapter 40. We are finishing up our exposition on Revelation 21 through 7. Two weeks ago, we actually exposited the scripture itself. Last week, we spent time giving the prophetic context for this scripture. And uh, this week, we are talking, we're, we're sitting in Ezekiel a little bit. Last week, we went to Ezekiel 34. We went to Ezekiel 37 as we consider two primary characteristics of the kingdom as we see them relating to prophecy. First, God directly ruling over Israel. And then second, there's this absolute justice, absolute peace, absolute prosperity that we see within this time. I had a really good question this last week. Pastor, how do you know when the the scriptures are talking about the millennium, the kingdom, the thousand year reign, and how are you talking about heaven? Or when is the Bible talking about heaven? Because we do see some overlap, right, between the, the characteristics of the millennium and the characteristics of heaven. In fact, as we get to heaven in, in, in a little while, and the new Jerusalem and the eternal state, I'm going to show you one passage of scripture where there's a little bit of conflict, where I initially had it in my teaching on the kingdom, millennial kingdom, and then I thought, well, when I actually dug into it a little bit more, I don't know that it's supposed to be there. And so I took it out, and I actually took out an entire point of character based upon that, um, that, that, that change of distinction um, may still be there, may not. But, but really, what, what you find within the promises of the millennial kingdom is you find God making a lot of promises to Israel. You find the distinction between Israel and the Gentile world is still there. You find that the Gentile world is seeking to Jerusalem. You find this distinction. You don't find that distinction in the eternal state. We are all... Uh, the New Jerusalem descends out of heaven. Of course, there's still the gates and the pearls and the foundations. And the, there's a lot of Israel there, obviously. But in the eternal state, what you find is one bride of Christ. And as a matter of fact, when we get to the official bride of Christ, this was another question that kind of came up uh, um, anecdotally this last week. The bride of Christ explicitly in the scripture, church is, is, is paired with it, but that term, the bride of Christ, is given to the inhabitants of New Jerusalem, which is not just the church age. So we have these various distinctions as we would see them. And so, at, <clears throat> excuse me, as you're studying and you're, you're digging into the scriptures and you're finding all of these promises and you're reading about all these promises of these things that simply aren't our world, right, of peace and prosperity and no war and, and, and children playing with, with, with uh, dangerous animals and, and, and no death and all of these elements, uh, look for if there's any promises uh, being made directly to Israel. If you see that distinction between Israel and the Gentile world still, then you're seeing something that is fulfilling the promises that God has made to Israel. And we see that the, the root of those promises are fulfilled in that 1,000 years where Jesus is ruling and reigning from the temple in Jerusalem. And that's what we're talking about today. Jesus ruling and reigning from the temple in Jerusalem. In Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48, we find this very unique passage of scripture. And I'm going to try to get through all of 40 to 48 today. So naturally, this is going to be a, a very summary-esque message. And it kind of needs to be because it's, it's, it's a bit academic. Um, the, the, the elements of Ezekiel 40 to 48, there's a lot of measurements. It's describing a temple. It's measuring the temple. It's talking about sacrifices. It's kind of uh, going through some of those more practical things. And of course, we'll bring it around to an application at the end. But in Ezekiel 40 to 48, we see this description of a temple. 
And it doesn't say that it's the temple of the millennium. It's a temple. But then as we walk through the studying of this temple, we're going to find that this temple is very unique in character. And then as we compare scripture with scripture, some of the scriptures we talked about last week in particular, we're going to find that this temple fits perfectly into these other prophetic passages that we have interpreted to be passages related to the millennial kingdom. And that's what we're going to hopefully see as we walk through the text today and we, we introduce these chapters. Now, I have preached this section, as I've mentioned. I've preached through Ezekiel before. It is online. And uh, I, I used... I, I got through Ezekiel 40 to 48 in two sermons, so this is not going to be quite as thorough as what I've done before. If you want to see those, they're not on YouTube. I preached it pre-YouTube days, but they are still on podcast and audio format on our website, LegacyBaptistChurch.net, and of course we're on um, iTunes and all that as far as podcasting is concerned, so feel free to, to listen to those. We dig thus into Ezekiel chapter 40. And uh, as I mentioned, I'm going to be summarizing a lot of things. You can uh, follow along as I do so. In Ezekiel chapter 40, beginning in verse 2, the Bible says this, In the visions of God brought he me into the land of Israel and set me upon a very high mountain, by which was as the frame of a city on the south. And he brought me thither, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of brass with a line of flax in his hand and a measuring reed, and he stood at the gate. And the man said unto me, Son of man, which was a term for Ezekiel, behold with thine eyes and hear with thine ears and set thine heart upon all that I show thee, for to the intent that I might show them unto thee art thou brought hither. Declare all that thou hast seen, now, all that thou seest, excuse me, to the house of Israel. So we find here that Ezekiel is brought in a vision to a gate. And a man is standing next to this gate and he has a measuring rod in his hand. Uh, we would today call it something like a yardstick, a stick that is cut to a very specific length and a standardized length in order that people may know the size of something in relation to other things, right? Now, the reason why we can, we can have any uh, um, idea of size or of distance is because we have a standardized system. So when I say something was 10 feet long, we don't have six different possibilities for a foot, right? Uh, so that we don't know exactly what it means that something was 10 feet long. We have a standard uh, measurement, and then those are, are based upon various other standards. And that is what brings us to this idea of, of a standardized system. So in this case, Ezekiel is going to be describing over the course of these next nine chapters, the dimensions and the operation of a temple. And what we'll find is that this temple is of absolutely massive scale. And let me just spoil it for you right from the beginning here. We're not going to get to the full scale of the temple for a while, but this is, is the, the general idea of what we're talking about here. So on the bottom right here, you have a 100 yard by 50 yard. That's an American football field. So that's what an American football field is in size. Above it and to the right, that was the size. 100 by 50 cubits, 150 feet by 75 feet approximately if a cubit is 18 inches. We're going to find that in Ezekiel, a cubit might be a little more than that. The cubit has changed over time depending on, it was actually a, a measurement of like a forearm, so depending on various uh, standardized systems. A cubit ranged anywhere from about 16 inches to 21 inches. So at a, at a normal, what we would say, a standardized 18-inch cubit, which is a foot and a half, now the court of the tabernacle with the temple and the altar and uh, the, the 
the wall around it and such, was right there, 150 feet by 70 feet. Solomon's temple was significantly larger than that, you can see. And the court around his temple, the altar, Solomon's temple added a portico, it added a porch, it added a lot of different things. And then you have Herod's temple up there on the right side. And Herod's temple really filled the temple mount. He made it a, 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 a very large complex and there was the woman's court and then there was the Gentiles court and all of these different elements and it became a very large very grand court and what dominates the left side of that of, of the screen here is the dimensions of the temple that's described in Ezekiel I mentioned last week so large are the dimensions of this temple complex that it is actually bigger than Mount Zion Right? So it's bigger than the mountain as it exists right now. You could not fit this temple complex on the mountain as it exists right now. We read in Zechariah 14, right, that there would be a leveling and that Jerusalem would be, that Jerusalem would be, would, would be, would be, uh, um, um, would ascend or would be brought up. And I interpreted that last week that there's probably actually going to be a flattening of the land and an elevation of Jerusalem in order to make room for this thing. Some way, shape, or form, something's going to have to change in the topography of that land before this temple can be built there. And so because of that, if, if history does not record anything like this, but we know that this cannot be a historical temple because it couldn't fit. That's the size of the temple that we're going to be talking about today. And Ezekiel 40 to 48 is describing the nature of this temple. So you'll see um, this particular chart as we continue walking throughout the text. Um, one last thing here about this before we move on. Uh, there are those who contend that this temple is the temple that will be built and will be operating before um, the millennium itself, the temple that, the, that sacrifices begin again in when the abomination of desolation causes them to cease at the midpoint of the tribulation. We know that there has to be a new temple built, that sacrifices have to begin again, right? Because they have to cease at the middle of the 70th week, and the 70th week has not yet taken place. So some believe that that's what's being described here. Of course, nobody knows for sure, but as I mentioned, as we walk through the text, I'm going to show you any number of things that really root this temple and its operation in the millennial kingdom and the, the elements of the millennium. So let's get going here. We begin at the eastern gate. I'll have circles for you at the various places where we are talking about here. Uh, the eastern gate would be, of course, the gate that is facing to the east. This is the most important gate. It's the most important gate in Jerusalem. It was the most important gate in the temple. It will be the most important gate in this temple. And as we get into Ezekiel chapter 40, verses 6 through 16, we find that this eastern gate um, was somewhere around with a 21-inch cubit. If we do a 21-inch cubit, 87 and a half feet long by nearly 44 feet wide. There are several windows. There are alcoves for the keepers, porches on the sides. This would be places where, uh, within any other normal gate system, there would be judges, there would be wise men, there would be scribes, there would be people talking about the Lord and the law and those sorts of things. And there are alcoves that are cut out for all of that to take place. There would also oftentimes be a place where people would bring their tithes as they're walking into the temple complex. They would leave their tithes there. Um, as they would go in and, and, and these sorts of things. And so we find that there is this eastern gate, and this eastern gate is described in verses 6 through 16 of chapter 40. Now, uh, in chapter 40, 
3, verses 28 through 31, the southern gate is described in the exact same way, the exact same dimensions, the exact same elements to the southern gate. Now, this is not the case as it relates to the northern gate, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. In chapter 40, verses 17 through 27, um, we see a description of the outer pavement of the court. The outer pavement of the court would have 30 rooms, uh, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 rooms on the outside used for we do not know what, uh, but it would have those 30 rooms and then there would be 175 feet or so between the outer court gates and the inner court gates as the dimensions are described. And then uh, God describes the same setup in the northern and the southern gates as the eastern gate, same dimensions, same distance, so they're all equidistant at that about 175 foot range. Uh, as we continue through, uh, chapter 40, verses 32 through 38, describe two more gates. These are the inner gates, and these two inner gates share the same dimensions as the outer gates. However, the porch on this northern inner gate is slightly different, and those differences here I've got labeled in red. In chapter 40, verses 39 to 43, we find that the porch of the north gate is where the burnt offerings were prepared. So they would bring in the animals uh, in through that area around the northern gate and it would be here that they would um, they would uh, wash the burnt offerings and prepare them for offerings. There were eight tables, Ezekiel describes, on this porch for the preparation of the sacrifices to go upon the altar. This was also the gate where the blood would be drained from the sacrifices before they would be put on the altar. So that was where all that preparation would take place. They would be slain, they would be drained, and they would be washed, and they would be prepared to be put upon on the altar of burnt offering. That being said, what we find here is that there are burnt offerings taking place within this temple complex, right? And we need to tuck that into our minds because we have already read within the context of a time where God is ruling and reigning, where there's peace and safety in the land, that there will be, a, there will be several feasts, right? The Bible said in Zechariah 14 that God would require that all the Gentiles come up to observe the Feast of, of Tabernacles every year. And if they didn't come up, there would be famines and plagues in their land and those sorts of things. And we talked about that as a part of God's economy, that within God's economy, there would be this ruling and reigning with a rod of iron. And that's what that kind of might look like, is the idea that if they disobey the word of the Lord, there will be immediate divine consequences upon them and upon their land for their rebellion, because we're still, still dealing with men naturally that have, um, that have a sin nature within the realm of, of those who have not taken part in the first resurrection, those that went into the millennium mortal. In chapter 40, verses 44 and 45, we see a description of uh, chambers that are for the singers and the priests. They were kept in houses located just inside the southern and northern gates, each facing each other. On this particular rendering, we don't see anything that particularly distinguishes that, so I just circled around the area where we might find those chambers, and those chambers will be for people that, for the singers to, to stay, to sing, and there will be singers, there will be singing around the throne of God um, regularly uh, within the, the, this, this kingdom. In chapter 40, verses 48 and 49, we see the description of the entrance itself. So we've gone through the first section, we've gone through the second set of gates into the inner court, and now we're talking about the description into the actual temple itself, the holy place, and then into the holy of holies. So it describes there being stairs and pillars on both sides, and we'll zoom in. 
as we talk about this, as we get into chapter 41, Ezekiel kind of zooms in and we zoom in as well. So what we're looking at is this would be uh, um, actually east. The, the bottom of this picture would be the east side. This would be the, 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 the entrance into, so if I go back one, the entrance there with those steps, those steps right there facing to the east are these steps. And east would be looking down on this particular chart. And what we find here is that each end, uh, there, there are actually kind of a, a three entrances and it, it reduces with each entrance. So the entrance has uh, pillars on either side and that first entrance um, is, is about 24 and a half feet and then it reduces to 17 and a half feet and then it reduces into the inner sanctuary to um, 10 and a half feet each entrance to the next level narrower than the last and then in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 41 Ezekiel kind of clips into the inner sanctuary only for a brief moment in fact Ezekiel is not allowed into that sanctuary even in this vision he is told to stand on the outside and the angel goes into that sanctuary and then tells him what is in there. So we, we find that this Holy of Holies is measured 35 feet square, 35 feet um, uh, square, 35 square feet. And so that inner sanctuary, just like in the tabernacle and the temples that we are familiar with from history, is a perfect square and in this case is 35 feet square. In verses 5 through 11, Ezekiel then sees the storerooms surrounding the temple proper. There are 30 storerooms, and they're all these, um, these uh, red highlighted rooms there. 30 storerooms on each level, and the Bible says that this temple is actually three levels high. So there's three stacked levels of 30 storerooms. And, and if they're anything like Solomon's storerooms, which were not nearly as many, uh, it's to hold the tithes and the offerings. That's what the storerooms around the temple were designed for in Solomon's temple. And if you think about the entire world coming to Jerusalem in order to give their tithes and offerings unto the Lord, um, you'd need a lot of storage space. So that's what we find there is those storage rooms surrounding the tabernacle proper. In verses 12 through 15, along with uh, the giving of the full dimensions of the temple, we find in the back side of this temple a 175 foot long by about 87 and a half foot wide temple complex there. Uh, he describes a building facing the temple courtyard on the, uh, to the west side of the temple. And there's absolutely no precedent for this in any temple that we've seen in the tabernacle, and there's no description as to what it's for. So there's this building back there facing the other direction. Nobody knows what it's for, but in this temple that Ezekiel is describing, it is there. Now, as we continue in chapter 41 to verses 16 through 26, what we find is that there is only one piece of furniture in this temple complex proper. It's an altar, the Bible says. It's not the altar of sacrifice, certainly, because that would be outside. It, it's just measured as an altar, three and a half feet by three and a half feet by five feet high. Probably, possibly, an altar of incense. That's kind of the best guess. Ezekiel saw no other furniture, or at least described no other furniture that would be significant in the temple possibly signifying that several of the elements of the former temple will not be present in this temple. We don't see an altar of showbread. We don't see the golden candlestick. But Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. We know, typically speaking, as we would 
study the temple complex that that each one of those elements of the furniture represents Christ in some way and yet when we look at the golden candlestick when we look at the table of showbread those are so clearly represented in Christ that that if Christ is there you don't really need a table of showbread you don't really need the golden candlesticks but the altar of incense still makes sense right because those are the prayers of the saints and we've seen that even in the temple in heaven. In the temple in heaven, in Revelation, as we studied it, we did not see a golden candlestick in that temple. We did not see the table of showbread in that temple. But what did we see in that temple? That there was an altar of incense uh, in that temple that was right before the face of the Lord, right? And the prayers of the saints would lift up to him day and night. So quite possibly, quite likely, as we compare Scripture with Scripture, we're looking at an altar of incense there, but no other furniture, which again distinguishes this quite heavily from other temples. It would be almost, um, as we think of geopolitics today at least, the idea that Israel would create a new temple and start sacrifices but not have, an, not have a table of showbread, not have a candlestick in the, in the temple seems impossible, right? They've already made the furniture, in fact. They're ready to go. Um, they're just waiting for their opportunity. So, um, again, another hint here that what we're looking at is probably not just Israel starting a new temple, but something else, something that, 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 that runs a little bit deeper. We'll continue to look for evidence for this as we continue. Into chapter 42, verses 1 through 12. The rooms described in these verses are connected to the inner court, but their entrance was from the outer court. So they're connected to the inner court, but you enter from that outer court, these chambers here. The outermost rooms of these are 87 and a half feet, like, like with the, the temple complex. Uh, the inner rows of the rooms, 175 feet long. Like the storerooms, they're spanning three stories, so there's three levels stacked on top of each other of these rooms, identical rooms, north and south side. Verses 13 and 14 tell us that these are the rooms where the priests who approach the Lord would eat the most holy offerings and would store their garments. So um, we'll, we'll find out a little bit more about these priests as we continue through the text, but this is where they will change their clothes. This is where they'll eat those offerings um, in preparation for offering sacrifices unto the Lord. And that brings us to the entire temple complex as we've described it. Um, I didn't give you the dimensions before. We're talking about 875 foot square is the entire dimension. Now, what are all those blue things there? Um, all those blue boxes that I give you, those are football fields. So I imposed football field measurements upon that. And so that's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, plus a little bit. 12 football fields plus a little bit is the size of this temple complex, just to give you an idea of the kind of size that we are dealing with here. Now, within the scope of Ezekiel's account, we find something very interesting. Way back in Ezekiel verses 9 and 10, God was talking about all of the evils of the land. And Ezekiel is brought back in visions to the, the, this evil uh, land. Jeremiah would have been in the land at the time. Jeremiah would have been preaching righteousness at that time. And Ezekiel is brought back in visions. And each time he looks at something, he, he sees evil. And, and then the next vision, he sees even more evil. And he sees the priests worship, digging holes under the temple and worshiping false gods under the temple. He sees a woman with her back to the temple of God, worshiping the sun and weeping for Tammuz, which we've talked about in our Babylonian stuff. So we see all of these evil, wicked things happening. And, and and Ezekiel is just, he is, he is deeply troubled by everything he's seeing. 
And then as he is watching this take place, with each particular successive vision, he sees the glory of the Lord, which was intended to rest above the mercy seat in the temple. And he sees that glory of the Lord move from above the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies out to the to the, the the gate of or to the, to the door of the tabernacle, and then he sees another vision of evil, and then he sees that the glory of the Lord move from there to the the eastern gate, and then he sees more evil, and then he sees the glory of the Lord move from the eastern gate over to the Mount of Olives, and then he sees more evil, and then he sees the glory of the Lord ascend into heaven from the Mount of Olives, which we talked about a little bit when we talked about Jesus descending back upon the Mount of Olives, right, and his feet touching from Zechariah fourteen, and how how that, that, that corresponds. And he sees this, and what he sees is the glory of the Lord departing from the holy place in the tabernacle and, and, and the temple at that time and, and, and leaving Israel. But then in Ezekiel chapter 43, Ezekiel sees, he's measuring out this temple. He's got all these measurements, and he sees this temple. And then what happens? In Ezekiel 43, verses 1 through 12, we find that the glory of God came from the way of the east, came into the house by the way of the eastern gate. The glory of the Lord descends again from the Mount of Olives and enters through the eastern gate and sits in this tabernacle, sits in this temple. And the glory of the Lord returns to the temple. Now the glory of the Lord, the Bible says, can return According to Ezekiel, as we look at Ezekiel 9 through 11, as we look at Ezekiel 40, 40 through 43, the glory of the Lord returns when the Lord has purged his na- the nation from their sin. We have studied when that happens, when they will look upon him whom they have pierced and mourn for him, when all Israel shall be saved, when everyone who dwells in Jerusalem from Isaiah chapter 4 will be holy unto the Lord. And we regard this as the time of the second coming and the beginning of the millennium the time when the Lord will actually be able to now enter into that temple, it will be cleansed, it will be right, and he will be a- the glory of the Lord will be able to fill the temple again. So we see that happen. Once again, lending to our, our minds this idea that we're probably dealing with the millennium here. The glory of the Lord has returned. And of course, we would recognize the glory of the Lord to be in the person of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But that's just a little snippet here in Ezekiel 43. We find next that in this time, sacrifices will begin again. We saw this a little bit last week as we regarded the nation. I mentioned from Zechariah 14 that the the Feast of the Tabernacles would be observed. In chapter 43, verses 13 through 17, we see the description of the altar of sacrifice this time. And this would be, of course, without the temple proper. It was 19 and a quarter feet long. A part of it was below ground. I know it's a little bit, you see the ground there, ground level. There's a little bit of it below the ground, and then it's stacked, and here's some steps going up to the top of that. And then this is a top-down view is what you're looking at there uh, as you're looking at that schematic a little bit. I, I didn't mean this to be an engineering class or an architecture class, but, um, but uh, that's what we're seeing here. 19 and a quarter feet long, part of it below ground, 17 and a half feet above ground, hearth of the altar about 21 feet square. Verses 18 through 27 describe a seven-day ceremony that was done by the priests of Zadok. And we'll talk about Zadok in just a moment. This seven-day ceremony that is done in order to consecrate the altar unto God. After seven days, the sacrifices 
will begin. The priest will present to the people's burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings on the altar. This will mark the official beginning of the function of the temple. So we see, Ezekiel sees the vision of the temple being built, the glory of the Lord returning to the temple, the altar being sanctified, being consecrated by the sons of Zadok, and then sacrifices beginning to begin. And he sees all of that, the official beginning of that time. Maybe that's the 75 days. Remember how we've talked about that 75-day gap in Daniel 12 between the end of the 70th week, the 1,260 days? Blessed is he that gets to the 1,335th day. There's a 75-day gap there. Maybe that 75-day gap is this temple being built, the, the, the Lord changing the landscape, the temple being built, the, um, then the altar being consecrated, and then the beginning of the sacrificial system, the beginning of the millennium proper. Maybe. Just, just throwing you know, out a little bit of speculation there. So that's what we see as we finish Ezekiel 30, uh, 43. In chapters 44 through 46, it describes the worship within this temple itself. And the angel brings Ezekiel back to the eastern gate, the gate through which the glory of the Lord re-entered the city of Jerusalem, re-entered this temple complex. And Ezekiel was careful to make, fo- make, make note of the fact that this gate was shut that no one was allowed to go through this gate, that after the, the, the glory of the Lord passed through it, that gate was shut and no one else went through that gate. And he states in verse 2 specifically that it was shut and never opened, nor shall man enter in because it is the door through which the Lord entered. And we see that with one exception in Ezekiel 44. The door is opened for one man, and this man is called the prince. Now, we saw in Ezekiel chapter 34 and Ezekiel chapter 37 that the Bible said that God would appoint shepherds over his flock and that David the prince would rule over them. And so we see this prince who, was, was, who is a man who worships the Lord. In fact, he has children, so we know it's not Jesus. He's going to be a man who has children, who who functions in a capacity. He has his own inheritance outside of the temple itself. And he is going to be the prince under, he's going to be, as it were, a mortal ruler underneath Jesus as king of kings and lord of lords. And this prince is allowed to go through the eastern gate, and this prince is called David. Now, there is question about this. I just mentioned that he'll be a mortal man because he'll have children. And the fact that he has children, and the Bible says that he will give an inheritance unto his children, um, most likely means that he is a mortal man. That being said, there are those that believe that this is the, the resurrected David. There are others that simply believe that this will be a, a man of the lineage of David because the Bible promised of such. So, so there is some debate as to what exactly is going on there. But in chapter 44, verses 5 through 10, God recounts how the temple had operated in the years that Israel had been responsible for its administration. God recounts that they had filled the temple with idols and had admitted the uncircumcised and had polluted it with corrupt offerings. But now that God was in charge, this is not going to happen anymore. That, that there will be no one that breaks his covenant. No stranger will enter into this sanctuary. It will be something that is a level above just human administration here. No uncircumcised, not in flesh, but in heart here, will ever enter into a sanctuary. No stranger will ever come in. Furthermore, those Levites, which had gone astray from him in years past, we find in Ezekiel 44, followed after the idols. God says they will bear their iniquity. They will be allowed to minister in the temple, but they will not be allowed 
to offer the burnt offerings. They will be able to keep the gates. They will be able to slay the burnt offerings. But because they were polluted ministering, uh, and having ministered unto idols, verses 13 and 14 of Ezekiel 44 tell us that they will not come near to the Lord. They will not minister in the most holy things of the temple. This is the consequence of their pollution. And this is the entire tribe of Levi with the exception of one family group. And the one family group that did not pollute themselves was the, the family group of Zadok. The, the, the family of Zadok. And so the family of Zadok will be the ones who minister before the Lord and all the other Levitical families, even though they're Levites, they'll be able to have a function, but they will not be able to come before the Lord because of the sins of their fathers in following after idols. The family of Zadok was always faithful to, to the line of David. The family of Zadok was always faithful to the covenant of the Lord. To that end, that is what we see as we continue. God declares in Ezekiel forty four fifteen that the, the line of Zadok would be allowed to come near him. What was their qualification? Well, I just mentioned it in part. Why do they, what, what did they do when others fell short? Why were they the ones that God chose to honor and to bless? Well, we're reading a little bit about it in Jeremiah where God is excoriating the prophets and the priests because the priests have, have wandered from him. But all the way back to David, we find some unique things about Zadok. I encourage you, if you want to re refresh your mind on this, to go back to the sermons I preached in 2 Samuel chapters 5-10. through 10. Zadok was a priest in the days of David. And he was faithful to David during the time when Absalom rebelled against him. God had promised Eli in the days of Judges because Eli had failed. His line had failed. His family had failed. He had failed to be faithful. And he promised that God would raise up a faithful priest. We recognize that in its purest sense to be a promise of Jesus himself. But we also see that within this promise, there is a line of priests from Ezekiel chapter. This is what we learned from Ezekiel 44, that there is a family of priests, a line of priests that were faithful and that was the line of priests from the family of Zadok. And they are usable because they were faithful and they did not turn away from the Lord. They never turned away from the covenant of the Lord. They never turned away from the Lord's anointed. They never went after, after these other um, possibilities in the land. They never went after the idols. They never followed that path. And so God is going to bless them in this time with the right to minister before the Lord exclusively. So throughout the final 13 verses of the chapter, God gives all of the regulations that will accompany their very special priesthood. They, these regulations demand righteousness and purity and exclusivity and a willingness to teach the people the difference between the holy and the profane and everything that God desired of the priesthood. These priests will be very special, very usable vessels unto the Lord. In chapter 45, we see the land of Israel divided by inheritance, as God did in the days of Canaan through Joshua. And this division uh, was to begin with a baseline, a chunk of land set aside for the temple complex. And that chunk of land would be, as the Bible describes it, 25,000 reeds long by 20,000 reeds long, which we would estimate to be about 8.3 miles long and 6.6 .6 miles wide. So eight and a half miles long, six and a half miles wide. And this 
this will be a, a land that is set aside as the land for the temple, the temple complex land. And this is, this is a, a huge tract of land, especially in that area of the world. And it's to be uh, divided then into two portions, one eight and a half by 3.3 mile long stretch, and then another eight and a half by 3.3 or 8.3 by 3.3, and, and then another 8.3 by 3.3. So divided in half lengthwise. Um, and one of these portions would be set aside for the priests of the sanctuary itself, and then the other would be given to the Levites who serve in the temple. So they'd get a portion, um, one for the priests, the, the line of Zadok, and then one for all of the other Levites that minister in the temple. Note the distinct difference between this setup and the setup of the law of the Old Testament. In the law of the Old Testament, the Levites were dispersed among the nation, right? They were dispersed in all the suburbs of the cities. They were given a few sanctuary cities, and that was it. But here, all of the Levites are concentrated into Israel. Why? Well, they've got a very different setup going on now here. And there's going to be plenty of people that will rule and reign and be kings and priests with the Lord throughout the rest of the world. That will be those that took part in the first resurrection. We saw that in Revelation 20 already, right? That everyone who take part in the first resurrection will rule and reign with Christ and be kings and priests with Him. And so we will, we will be priests of the Lord in various other parts of the world. The Levitical priests will concentrate in the land of Israel and concentrate around the temple of God. In verse 6, we see a lot that is reserved for the city of Jerusalem itself. 8.3 miles long by 1.7 miles wide will be the lot for the city of Jerusalem. And then there is an inheritance um, of the city as as. You math folks, if you're, if you're kind of keeping this straight in your head, I'll show you a chart in just a minute. If you're keeping all this straight in your head, um, you'll find that between the inheritance of the Levites, the city of Jerusalem, the inheritance of the temple, there's a perfect 8.3 by 8.3 square mile square of land that will be that holiness unto the Lord. Jerusalem, the temple, the Levites. 8.3 by 8.3 square mile tract of land, the holy portion there. The remainder of the chapter describes the dividing of uh, millennial worship and then, and then the dividing of the land. So within the millennial worship system, Ezekiel 45 verses 13 through 17 describes the specific amounts that everyone would pay in taxes and tithes unto the Lord. Everyone will offer a percentage of what they have, ensuring that everyone is treated equally. So they will give one sixtieth of their wheat and their barley to the Lord. They will give one one-hundredth of their oil to the Lord in the temple. They will give one sheep out of every 200 sheep that they have. These would be given specifically to the prince, the Bible says, not, not to the Lord himself, but to the prince, who would in turn use them for the maintenance and the function of the temple and its sacrifices. Mentioned specifically in verse 17 of Ezekiel chapter 45 are burnt offerings, meat offerings, drink offerings, new moon feasts, and Sabbaths, all of which the Bible implies to some degree or another will function within this economy. As we close chapter 45, we get a look at the feasts that are described in this time. You recall under the law there were three times in which Israel was required to come to the temple for feasts. They were required to come for the feast of Passover and unleavened bread. They were required to come for the feast of Pentecost. And they were required to come for the feast of tabernacles or booths. Also observed in the law were the Feast of Trumpets and the, Feast, and the Day of Atonement. 
There are only two feasts that are described within this Ezekiel economy that we would believe to be the millennial kingdom and then two other observant days. In verses 18 and 19 of Ezekiel 45, it states that the first day of the first month would be a day to cleanse the sanctuary through a sacrifice. And then in verse 20, it says that the seventh day of the first month would be a day to cleanse the people of their sins. That would be, of course, the people living in the world who are still mortal, who, who have not um, died and, and thus received their resurrected bodies. Uh, and that, that would reconcile the house of Israel unto God. That would be those who are born of the house of Israel who are, are still um, mortal, still, still human flesh, still having a sin nature. Verses 21 through 24 describe a feast beginning on the 15th day of the first month and continuing for seven days. This feast is the exact same length of, of the Feast of Unleavened Bread following the Passover. And um, it's even called in verse 21 the Passover of Unleavened Bread, indicating that the feast will serve a similar or, or function to that of the Passover. However, it likely has a different object. For those of you that were here last Sunday night in Jeremiah 23, recall how God promised that in the day that he was speaking of, the day when he would come, the day when he would cleanse the people from their sins, that there would be a day when they would no longer consider themselves redeemed, as uh, that they would no longer connect their redemption to Egypt, but they would connect their redemption to this day when the Lord regathered them from the north. And so we see a fundamental change here that's mentioned both in Jeremiah 16 and Jeremiah 23. I give you the Jeremiah 16 passage here, verses 14 and 15. The Bible says, Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be said, The Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands whither he had driven them, and I will bring them again into their land that I gave unto their fathers. And so we find that that there's this change in the characteristic of redemption. And most likely we will see that change reflected in this Passover. That this is now going to be a Passover that commemorates the regathering of Israel from the north and from the lands where they they were scattered rather than the, the actual exodus from Egypt which is no longer going to be the defining characteristic of Israel's redemption. Notice as well that when we talked about the Gentiles coming to a feast it mentioned nothing about the feast of Passover only the Feast of Tabernacles in Zechariah. To that end, we would likely understand that this is a Israel-centric feast, which would make sense because God regathered Israel from the north, regathered his scattered people from the north within our context of interpretation. So we see that. Then finally we see a seven-day feast beginning on the 15th day of the seventh month. And this aligns perfectly, the 15th day of the seventh month, that's the Feast of Tabernacles. That's the Feast of Booths, right? That's what that one is. And so we see the Feast of Tabernacles, which which in the days of Israel was to uh, commemorate their wandering in the wilderness and that the Lord's presence was among them, right? They, They tabernacled with the Lord in the wilderness. Well, here, the whole world is tabernacling with the Lord, For a thousand years. His presence is among them. And so it would make sense that the whole world, Gentile and Jew alike, would observe this sacrifice, would observe this feast, because the whole world is tabernacling with the Lord. And so we have this second feast day, no doubt to celebrate the physical presence of the Lord with his people. Once again, I'm interpreting here, you may disagree, but can you see why I feel like it's consistent to call this the Millennial Temple? Okay, we hasten on. 
As we transition into chapter 46, the daily ministration of the temple as pertaining to worship is described. We mentioned last time the eastern gate through which the Lord entered would be shut, except for the prince who would come in through that gate. We learn more in these verses about the Sabbaths and the new moons. The gate would be open for the prince. He would give his sacrifices. He would enter and exit out of the eastern gate, and only he would enter and exit out of that gate. Everyone else, according to Ezekiel 46 verse 9, will enter in through the north or the south gate, and they are by law commanded to leave out of the opposite gate that they entered. They don't come in the same way that, they don't leave the same way that they came in. Uh, there's a, perhaps a spiritual metaphor there. Don't come in, but don't leave the way you came, right? Um, so they're not allowed to leave from the same gate that they entered. If they come in through the north, they have to leave through the south. If they come in through the south, they have to leave through the north. And we see that there in Ezekiel 46. Verses 11 through 15, we see a description of the events surrounding an unscheduled or voluntary offering by the prince. Every once in a while, the prince might say, I'm declaring a holiday, and there's an, uh, there's an unscheduled holiday, and the prince has the right, this prince who is called David, has the right to declare this holiday. In like manner, the Sabbaths and the new moons, the eastern gate would be open for him to enter and then to offer. There will also be a daily sacrifice made, not for the offerings of the people, but as a part of the regular worship of the Lord. In verses 16 through 18, we see a description of God's expectations concerning the prince's gifts to his children and to his servants. Um, and, and this comes to what is described as a 50th year jubilee. Uh, that, uh, again, there's some Old Testament context there about every 50th year, there would be a year of jubilee, and everyone's inheritance would go back to God's inheritance, right? Everything would be reset in the land so that nobody loses their inheritance in the land. Under the Mosaic law, this would happen on the 50th year where every man's inheritance would be returned to him. It would seem that the millennium will have something similar for Israel, that any land that is given will be returned except for land that the prince gives. If the prince gives someone a land, it will be theirs forever. And so the prince has this unique power with God whereby what he uh, changes as far as inheritance and giving land to people will be theirs perpetually. We don't know if that will be a, a portion of his allotment because he's going to get quite a large allotment. You'll see that in the map in a moment or otherwise. But we see that uniqueness there as it relates to the prince. Any land given uh, that the prince gives to his servants for whatever reason uh, will be returned but not to his sons on this year of Jubilee. At this point I'm compelled to bring up the identity of this prince again. I do believe most likely that this will be an heir of David, not David himself because he has sons. And the idea of, of us and our resurrected bodies having children is something that we just don't see any precedent for in the scriptures. Um, most likely then this one who is called David the prince is a physical lineage of David, an heir to his throne in the same way that we would see the line of Zadok and such. Okay, almost done here. In Ezekiel 46, verses 19 through 24, the chapter finishes with Ezekiel being led back into the temple where he sees the priests boiling the trespass and the sin offerings. It introduces us to those chambers which we talked of, of which there are four in the outer court. Chapters 47 and 48 describe to us the remainder of the land of promise. The first feature mentioned is the life-giving river that will flow from God's presence in the temple, from this glory of the Lord that's in the temple, and it will flow both directions toward the Mediterranean Sea and toward the Jordan River. And this will flow back, and everywhere where that water flows, there will be tremendous growth. There will be tremendous, um, there will be tremendous um, fertility. We saw in Zechariah 14.8 last week, if you remember, 
a description of this time where the Lord will return to his people. And in Zechariah 14, 8, the Bible described a river flowing from Jerusalem that would divide the land, right? It would divide the land in half. A river flowing to the Mediterranean, a river flowing to the Jordan. And then the Bible says that Ezekiel traveled east along this river. And at 1,750 feet, it was up to his knees. Uh, excuse me, it was up to his ankles. Another 1,750 feet he traveled, it was up to his knees. Another 1,750 feet he traveled, it was up to his waist. And then by that fourth 1,750 feet, he says it was too deep for a man to walk in it. More importantly than the look of the river, however, is the effect of the river upon the land. Literally, rivers of living water is what this will be. Verses 7 through 12 of Ezekiel 47 describe that alongside the river, trees will produce beautiful vegetation. And, and the Bible says it flowed toward the east, and then it eventually hits the Jordan River, and then the Jordan River will carry it down to the Dead Sea. And the Bible specifically says that the Dead Sea in this time will be very lush and and. Fertile. Now, the Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea because nothing can grow there. Nothing can grow or live in that sea because it has six times the, the salt concentration of the ocean in that sea. Nothing can live in that. Salt kills stuff. So nothing can live in a sea where there's six times the concentration, uh, salt concentration of the ocean. But what we will find is that in this day, the Dead Sea will be revived. And that's a spiritual metaphor. That in this day... That sea, which represents Israel and is dead and nothing is alive in it, will be enlivened once again. So there's coming a day when Israel will be, in, will be healed, and that's what we see there. God is careful to mention, however, in verse 11, that there will still be a lot of salt in the land, and this will become a, a, a source of tremendous, and there are a tremendous amount of salt repositories in the land, and that will become a, a source of great wealth for Israel in this time. We'll talk about that when we get to Gog and Magog over the next several weeks. All right, so beginning in uh, 47 verse 13 through the end of the book, uh, 48 verse 35, we see a description of the inheritance that's given to each of these tribes in fulfillment of God's promises. Verses 15 through 17, God describes the northern boundary of the land, which we would believe would be uh, north of Damascus there, and uh, that northern boundary. Um, stretching to the Mediterranean Sea, of course, on the left side. On the right side, the eastern border, it kind of extends out uh, beyond Galilee pretty significantly, and then it traces the Jordan River as it, as it uh, flows down uh, from the Sea of Galilee down into uh, the Dead Sea, which will no longer be dead. And then we find uh, the individual inheritance. Notice that there's this square. You see this, this square, and it kind of zooms in. I'm sorry if you can't read that real well, but within this square, there's a Levite's portion, there's a priest portion, there's the sanctuary, there's city land, there's the city, there's the city land, an 8.3 mile square there. And then on the left side of that square, from the, the, the border of the city and of the temple all the way to the Mediterranean Sea is the prince's portion. That's his inheritance. That's perhaps what he can give to anyone he wants, his sons and such. Uh, and then on the right side as well, going all the way to Jordan, is also the prince's inheritance. So we see this portion cut out. There's going to be the river flowing both ways from there, cutting Israel in half with... Um, Six of the tribes to the north and, excuse me, seven of the tribes to the north and five of the tribes to the south in their inheritance. A portion for Dan, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Ephraim, Reuben, Judah, Benjamin, Simeon, Issachar, Zebulun, and Gad. And notice here, 
Notice here, and of course, again, Zadok has his portion, the Levites have their portion, that's all within the land proper. So Levi's portion is um, within the, is, is close to the tabernacle, right? What we also do find here, however, Ephraim and Manasseh get their double portion as God promised to Joseph, right? He, he gets the birthright, he gets the double portion, and notice that Dan is here. Remember when we were talking about the ceiling of the 144,000, that Dan is not there? And I talked about why that probably is. Uh, well, maybe not probably. It's my, my, I, I gave you my theory as to why that is, that Dan was not a part of that ceiling. And yet when we get to this inheritance, they are not a lost tribe. They're here. The people are there. They have their inheritance. God has not renounced them. God is, they just didn't, they weren't a part of the ceiling of the 144,000 in the, in the 70th week. But they have a portion here. Take note of that. Okay, we end our very brief summary there. It was a very brief summary of nine chapters of Scripture. Um, but that is this temple. As we look at the characteristics of this temple, we compare Scripture with Scripture. We see a great number of things that lend me to the recognition that what I see in it is millennial. We could talk about why the sacrifices are there. There's some difficult questions to talk about. Why are there sacrifices being made when Jesus is there, when he's fulfilled the system? All of those different things. We talked a little bit about the, the different um, feast days and why those feast days might work and why the ones that aren't there aren't and the pieces of furniture that are there and aren't there. And a lot of that makes sense. And perhaps we, we don't have all of the answers, but it seems to me that this is a worship system that is tailored for the Lord being present. And Revelation 20, verses 1 through 7, tells us that there's time when the Lord will be present, where there will still be mortals on this earth, having sons, having daughters, needing sacrifices for sins, still sinning, still st living in imperfection, but, but living in this place of, 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 of peace and of, of prosperity, and the Lord is there. And all of that just fits into a 1,000-year literal reign of Christ like we have interpreted in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 7. And so that's where we come from as we study all of this. Again, I've spent three weeks on this portion, but there's a lot more that could be studied. Um, there's some good books on it that I can certainly point you to if you want more information. But let's apply. It's been really academic today, and uh, sometimes I feel a little bit bad about that. I want to get you the information, but I don't want to just leave you with information. So let's apply. What I drew from this as I studied it is this. The worship will never cease. We, we d described nine chapters of Scripture, an entire complex, an entire inheritance system, all directed toward the worship of God. And that's the common thread throughout all of this teaching, throughout all of the millennium, is that God will be praised. God will be worshipped and it will never cease. We find it going all the way back to Cain and Abel. We find it all the way through to the eternal state. And it is what we are created to do, is it not? We are created to acknowledge and worship our Creator. So that the psalmist says in Psalm 95, O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise unto the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto Him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. That's what we saw today. The King of Kings on His throne being worshipped by the whole world because He is a great God 
and a king above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is his also. The sea is his, and he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. As in the provocation, as in the day of the temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work, forty years long was I grieved with this generation, and said, It is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways, unto whom I will swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. We read about this in Hebrews, right? We read about this in Hebrews chapter 6 and, and going through to chapter 10 about the danger of not entering into his rest. Harden not your hearts as in the day of the provocation. But what is the solution? What is the thing that keeps our heart a heart of flesh? What is the thing that guards us from hardness? Well, that's the first half of the psalm, right? Sing unto the Lord. Worship Him. Give praise unto His name. Understand who He is and acknowledge Him for who He is. Keep the Lord ever before your eyes. All this academic stuff, it's interesting. It's, you know, it is charts and diagrams and measurements and putting pieces together. That's all great. But the fact is what we're studying is a time when the Lord will be worshipped in a, in, in a different way. But we can worship Him today. And that is what keeps our heart from this warning from this hardness as in the day of provocation. What will do that for us? Worship. Don't just worship on Sunday. Wake up and worship. Spend time throughout your day in worship. Because worship was the first half that then led to this warning, harden not your hearts. Well, well where do those two come together? Worship that your heart will be not hardened. So we sing praises unto his name. So we give glory to the Lord. We give honor unto him that is due unto him. And this is not just an exercise. This is a part of what keeps our hearts soft. Our hearts receptive to the word of the Lord. So let's worship him. We've worshiped him already. We'll worship him a little bit more in this evening in song. We, we can also worship him through obedience. We worship him through meditating on his word. And let's be sure that as we increase in our knowledge of this worship system that will be, let's allow it to compel in us a reminder that though we're not a part of that system, at least not yet, that what they're doing is the same privilege we have today, which is to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, to give glory unto the Lord, to give honor unto His name. And let's do that this day throughout this week. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.